Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A quick listener note. This podcast contains adult language and descriptions of violence. Hello. Hi, is this Linda? Uh-huh. Hi, Linda. It's uh, it's Liliana Segura. How are you? Oh, I'm okay. How are you? I'm okay. Thanks so much for returning my call. Two days after we visited Charles Raby on Texas death row, I was startled to see a tweet about his case directed at me from a name that I didn't immediately recognize. As it turned out, it was Linda McLean, the daughter of Edna Franklin the woman Charles was accused of killing in 1992. After a brief game of phone tag, I caught up with her two days before Christmas. Yeah, I was just surprised to hear from you. Oh, well, I was surprised to hear from you <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> um, which well, is, yeah. I couldn't figure out any other way to do it, so I thought, well, Twitter will be rushing. Surely somebody will get a message or I can get, reach somebody on this Twitter, but yeah. So, so do you have a question? Yeah, well, I was just, I was curious how you thought to contact me and uh, about Mr. Raby. Well, every time something happens with Charles Raby, I'm notified as a victim because my mother was murdered by Charles Raby. That's how she got our names. She wanted to know if we had an agenda. I'm assuming in case you're out there blabbering all over the world, oh, this man is innocent. He didn't do it. He's innocent. Oh, my goodness. You know, that's what makes me mad is these innocent project people. They don't go and find out the other story. And do they even read the transcripts and the confessions and the witnesses? I don't know. From The Intercept, I'm Liliana Segura. And I'm Jordan Smith. Welcome back to Murderville, Texas. Episode 3, The Trial. We're going to talk more about Linda McLean. We got to know her pretty well. She had a lot to say from the start. Above all, she wanted to make clear that she did not believe Charles Raby was innocent. This was based on his confession, of course, but also her own experiences with Charles and what happened when he was tried for her mother's murder. Before we get to the details of Charles's trial, we need to talk a bit about a pre-trial hearing that took place in May 1994. It was all about Charles's confession and whether it should be allowed as evidence against him. This is known as a suppression hearing. The defense tries to convince a judge that certain evidence should be tossed out. When it comes to a confession, the argument is often that the defendant recanted, saying it was made up or coerced by cops. What happened at Charles's suppression hearing makes his confession all the more vexing. Charles was represented by an attorney named Felix Cantu. During the hearing, Cantu argued that Charles's confession had been coerced, that the cops had threatened to arrest his girlfriend, Mary Alice Gomez, and take her baby away. And that's what had prompted Charles to confess. The state, represented by Harris County Assistant District Attorney Roberto Gutierrez, said this was nonsense. Remember how the cops said they'd given Charles coffee, a Coke, and a burger? They emphasized this to show that there was no coercion whatsoever. And they adamantly denied making any threats, even veiled ones, that they'd arrest Mary Alice. But then, Charles got on the stand. Under questioning by Gutierrez, Charles admitted that various aspects of his interactions with the cops had been entirely voluntary. 
he'd waived his right to an attorney. He'd agreed to give samples of his blood and hair for comparison against crime scene evidence. We brought on actors to read from the court transcripts. Here's what happened next. You do agree that nobody mistreated you? No. And nobody mistreated Ms. Gomez? No. Your only concern is that she was being inconvenienced some and you were just concerned about her? Yeah. Okay. Well, would you agree with me, Mr. Raby, there was nothing really about that that would have made your signing a confession involuntary? Uh, well, I didn't want her to go to jail. Gutierrez reiterated that nobody had explicitly threatened to throw Mary Alice in jail. Charles agreed. In terms of you giving that confession, you were giving that confession because you wanted to come straight with Sergeant Allen. Yeah, and I wanted her to go home. The quicker I got that over with, the quicker she could get out of there. Gutierrez tried to steer the conversation away from Mary Alice. Wasn't it true that Charles was going to turn himself in anyway and give a full confession? Charles said he didn't know, just that he was going to say whatever he needed to convince them he hadn't done it. You're not telling the judge that the only reason you signed the confession was because you wanted to get her out of there. You signed it because you did it voluntarily and because it's true, right? Okay. Here's where you'd think that Charles would say no. He would deny the confession was true and reiterate his concern about Mary Alice. But instead, he said this. Because it's true and, you know, well, he didn't force me to do it, but I wanted her to go home. I didn't feel like it was right for her to be there. Now, when I first read this, I was like, what? Because it's true? Did he just admit that the confession had been true all along? Yeah, I really didn't know what to think. Charles's whole defense at this point is that the confession was coerced. So, you know, it would have been the perfect moment for his lawyer, Cantu, to ask Charles a few questions to clear everything up. But that didn't happen. Instead, moments after his client appeared to double down on his confession, Cantu asked a convoluted question about what time it was when Charles gave his statement. And that was it. Even in the very best of scenarios, it is super hard for the defense to win a suppression hearing. With Charles's disastrous turn on the witness stand, there was no way that the judge was going to toss his confession. It was definitely going to be admitted as evidence. Roberto Gutierrez, the prosecutor who would try Charles for Edna Franklin's murder, started his career as a journalist. He scored a big scoop when a man tried to break out of prison in Huntsville back in the 1970s. Gutierrez pivoted to the law and quickly proved himself a talented prosecutor. By the end of the 80s, he'd secured several death sentences. From the start of our reporting, we've been unable to reach Gutierrez. We tried various phone numbers and email addresses and sent a letter to an address we thought was his. We also tried looking for him on social media. Nothing. In the handful of newspaper articles we found that mention Gutierrez, he comes across as a charismatic guy with a self-deprecating sense of humor. In 1991, he chased down a 19-year-old probation violator who was shot in the butt by a bailiff while trying to flee a courtroom. Gutierrez tackled the kid in a hallway and later quipped, When I got up, everybody thought I got shot. Everybody seemed disappointed. Finally, through a public records request, we managed to get our hands on Gutierrez's personnel file, which was illuminating. Not only about him, but the Harris County DA's office as a whole. Throughout the 90s, the office was aggressively seeking death sentences. The district attorney was a man named Johnny Holmes. He had a handlebar mustache. His office was decorated with sort of Old West paraphernalia. And in his office, a culture of seeking the death penalty really developed. That's Maurice Shema. He's a Texas journalist who wrote a book about the state's death penalty system. 
I heard stories about you know prosecutors who called themselves the Silver Needle Society because they had sent men to death row. There was a rock band formed of prosecutors who in their free time would perform gigs under the name Death by Injection. During this era, prosecutors were evaluated not only on how many convictions they secured, but also on how much prison time those defendants got. Gutierrez consistently got high marks in his performance reviews. He was described as well-liked, hardworking, and willing to take on tough cases. But he was also praised for things that don't exactly sound like something to strive for, if your goal is to do justice. One supervisor wrote, Roberto will try any case regardless of the strength or weakness of evidence. Another lauded him for winning a death sentence on a thin case. Meanwhile, many of the lawyers representing defendants facing the death penalty were not up to the task. You know how you have a right to an attorney if you can't afford one? Well, the majority of people facing the death penalty are poor and rely on court-appointed lawyers. Charles Raby was one of them. At the time, there was no public defender office. There were just private attorneys appointed by the courts. A lot of them were unqualified to begin with. And to make matters worse, they were often denied the resources they needed to represent their clients. Like funding for investigators and expert witnesses. Meaning there was a huge power imbalance. The state had attorneys who were trained for this job. And they had full budgets for these cases. Here's Jim Marcus. He's a law professor at the University of Texas at Austin. He's worked on death penalty cases for decades. He was just starting his legal career in Houston when all of this was going on. That's the era, you know, that's when Mr. Raby was sentenced to death. And so he was he was fed into this system, which was characterized by, you know, plagued by really rampant ineffectiveness. Many, many, many people were sent through the system with inadequate counsel. In theory, those defendants would have a chance to challenge their convictions by arguing that their trial lawyers were ineffective. But more often than not, those efforts went nowhere. That's eventually what would happen in Charles's case. His challenge was denied by the courts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's June 6th, 1994. The 248th District Court in Harris County, Texas. Judge Woody Denson presiding over the capital murder trial of Charles Raby the state would be seeking the death penalty. Charles was seated towards the front of the courtroom. He wore a white striped shirt with a blue and red tie. Several of Edna Franklin's relatives were seated in the gallery. Charles's mother, Betty, attended the trial, too. At 42, she was slight, with blonde hair. 
Watching her son go on trial for his life was another trauma in a life already filled with trauma. Growing up, Betty had been sexually abused by her father. She married Charles's dad, Charles Elvis Raby, after finishing 10th grade. But he abandoned her when Charles was just a baby. Later, Betty was repeatedly hospitalized for mental illness. The first time, Charles had just turned 12. Child welfare removed him and his younger sister from their home. For Charles, it was the first of countless placements throughout the foster care system. The trial did not get off to a good start, at least for the defense. The first thing that happened, Cantu, Charles's attorney, asked Judge Denson for the trial to be delayed. His co-counsel, a guy named Michael Fosher, was nowhere to be found. This isn't just a minor wrinkle. In death penalty trials, it is standard practice to have two attorneys representing a defendant, first and second chair. Fosher was the second chair, which means Cantu was the lead guy. So you'd think he'd know where his co-counsel was. But Cantu told the judge that he hadn't heard from him. At this point, Gutierrez piped up helpfully. I spoke to him yesterday, judge. I talked with co-counsel at his home. Gutierrez said that Fosher had a ruptured disc and was in a lot of pain and had been given medication. As Gutierrez recalled, Fosher said he was going to see his doctor that morning and then would try to make it to court. The judge seemed unfazed by this. Okay, anything further, he asked, before starting the trial. It was a sign of the way things would go. In his opening argument to the jury, Gutierrez laid out the state's case. He contended that Charles had killed Edna Franklin because he was pissed that she didn't want him coming over to her house. Remember, the police had specifically argued that if they could get blood from Charles, they'd be able to get his DNA and link it to the crime. But Gutierrez told the jury there is no DNA in this case. In fact, there was no physical evidence tying Charles to the crime. And while the confession was their main evidence, Gutierrez acknowledged that even that was pretty weak. Charles never mentioned that he'd sexually assaulted Edna Franklin, Gutierrez said, or had any intention to rob her or burglarize the house. This was an important admission. In order for a murder to be eligible for the death penalty, it has to be murder plus something. So murder plus rape, or murder plus robbery. It's called an aggravator, and it's what's supposed to turn a regular murder into one so heinous the state can kill you for it. As Gutierrez continued, he basically gave the jury permission to decide that one of three aggravators existed. Rape, robbery, or burglary. But without having any direct evidence that any of them took place. And they didn't have to agree on which of these things happened. One of the first witnesses for the state was 25-year-old Eric Benj, Franklin's grandson, who found her on the night of the murder. Eric talked about why his grandmother didn't like Charles, which you would expect. But he didn't stop there. Gutierrez had him describe the house from room to room, essentially asking him to analyze the crime scene. This is the kind of testimony that you usually get from a cop or a crime scene investigator, not from a victim's relative. One of the weirdest things? A bunch of talk about a window. The window to Eric's bedroom, to be precise. On the night of the murder, Eric told police that he thought the killer had entered the house through that window, even though the front door was wide open when he'd arrived home. In fact, the window thing is one of the reasons investigators decided Charles had done it. Eric told them Charles was one of the only people who knew how to get in that way. 
there's at least one problem with this. According to the confession, Charles came into the house through the front door. Gutierrez asked Eric to tell the jury about the, quote, point of entry. He had Eric hold up a picture taken of his bedroom on the night of the murder and asked him, Is there anything particular about the bed? Yes, uh, you can see where he climbed through the window, Eric replied. It looks like there are two footprints on the bed. Gutierrez asked him to mark the photo and show the jury where these, quote, indentations were. For the record, Eric was not actually qualified to say one way or another whether anyone had stepped on the bed. In the crime scene photos, there's nothing that resembles a footprint. It's just a rumpled sheet. Later, an actual expert, called by the state, would testify that there were no footprints found on the bed. In any event, Gutierrez tried to bolster Eric's testimony with some unusual circumstantial evidence. Marijuana. According to Eric, he smoked pot regularly. And everybody knew this. What's more, everyone knew where he kept it. So, on the night of the murder, Eric went to look for his pot. And he found it right in its place. There was only one person who didn't know where Eric kept his pot. That was Charles Raby. Okay, hold up. Eric is basically saying that whoever killed his grandmother would have stolen his pot if they'd known where it was. And since it wasn't stolen, only one person he knew could have been responsible. Charles. We're not sure what this is supposed to tell the jury, but it's bizarre. And rather shocking that the prosecution would have brought this in. Even more shocking, Charles's lawyers didn't object to any of this. Not the window, the sheets, or the pot. Even more important, they didn't do anything to address the glaring holes in the state's case. The total lack of physical evidence linking their client to the crime. The state called a series of experts to explain away the lack of forensic evidence pointing to Charles. But first, there was Dr. Eduardo Bayas, the medical examiner who did Franklin's autopsy. He described Franklin's injuries in painful detail. Eight of her ribs had been broken in the struggle with her attacker, he said. He found defensive wounds to her arms, signs that she'd fought back. Ultimately, she was stabbed five times, including twice through the heart, and slashed across the neck deep enough to sever her windpipe. All of these wounds could have been made with just a small pocket knife, Bea said, like the one Charles carried. Bayas also examined Franklin for signs of sexual assault, but found none. But that didn't mean it didn't happen, he told the jury. An examiner from the Houston Police Department Crime Lab testified about underwear found next to Franklin, underwear the state assumed she'd been wearing that night. This witness concluded it had been forcibly ripped apart. Another crime lab analyst testified that hairs found clutched in Franklin's hand belonged to Eric Benj, not Charles. Gutierrez suggested that, since Eric lived there, it wasn't weird that his hair would be on the carpet, or that some of it would have wound up in Franklin's hand when she fell to the floor during the attack. There was a fingerprint examiner who said he found nothing at all at the house. No bloody fingerprints or shoe prints anywhere. He gave the jurors several reasons why he found no prints. One of the most absurd was that the wind could have blown them away. For the record, that's not a thing. And then there was Joseph Chu, another HPD crime lab analyst. He typed Charles's blood. He has type O blood. And then compared it to blood evidence found at the scene. His testimony was brief, but really important, particularly the following exchange, in which he was questioned by Cantu. Actors will read it for you. And your conclusions from that analysis? 
From the evidence, it is inconclusive test results, so I cannot do any comparison. So it was inconclusive results? Yes, you can say that. He said it was inconclusive. Remember that. Aside from a few other witnesses, the cops who arrested Charles, the people who said they saw him around the day of the murder, there wasn't much else to the state's case. Except the confession, which Gutierrez read to the jury. The state rested its case and turned it over to the defense. You might expect Charles's lawyers to have called their own experts, like maybe a pathologist, to challenge the medical examiner's claim that even the smallest of knives could have caused Franklin's wounds. Or Mary Alice, to describe what happened at the police station. But instead, they called no witnesses and said they too would just rest. Then it was time for closing arguments. Co-counsel Michael Fosher, the lawyer who was MIA at the start of the trial, spoke first. An actor will portray him. First of all, I would like to apologize for the way I look. He explained that several months earlier, he'd fallen and hurt his ribs. He'd been dealing with medical problems ever since. The weekend before the trial was especially tough, he said. So he'd been given a kind of neck brace. Which is very uncomfortable, very hot, and makes me sweat. Fosher emphasized that there was no evidence to back up the aggravators alleged by the state. They haven't proven the burglary. They haven't proven the robbery. They haven't proven the aggravated sexual assault. It was clearly a gruesome crime, he conceded, but... I'm telling you, you just can't assume that a person has committed a crime without valid proof. Then Fosher did something astonishing. He conceded Charles's guilt... The state has proved there was a killing. They have proved that Mr. Raby committed this killing. Reading the transcript, it just comes out of nowhere. And it's really surreal. And a crappy strategy. He's saying, look, my guy killed someone, but it was just a regular murder. Not a death-eligible one. So convict him, but don't kill him. When I read all of this, I was like, OMFG, what is happening? That's literally what I wrote in my notes. I had a similar reaction. The state really hadn't proven their case. Yet Fosher is telling the jury that his client killed Edna Franklin before they've even gone back to deliberate. Then, when Cantu took over, he basically made the state's case for them. Instead of reiterating that there was no physical evidence tying Charles to the crime— He seemed to get carried away, pointing out just how gruesome it all was. Cantu took off his jacket and started vividly illustrating the many wounds Franklin suffered. It indicates the level of intensity, the level of just the madness and the craziness of that moment for somebody to stab another person, he said. It should come as no surprise that the jury quickly convicted Charles of murder. What was left to decide was whether he would be sentenced to life or death. That would happen after another mini-trial, what's known as a punishment hearing. In a death penalty case, one of the most important things a defense team is supposed to do in advance of a sentencing hearing is a deep dive on their client's early life to uncover any potential abuse, neglect, or trauma. This is called mitigation, developing evidence that explains how a person ended up on the wrong path, which can be used to persuade a jury to spare their life. It's extremely sensitive and time-consuming work, best done by an expert known as a mitigation specialist. But there was no such expert on Charles's team. Instead, the defense called an array of relatives and other witnesses who seemed to bolster the state's case. Like Robert Butler, Charles's former stepfather. Charles lived with him on and off from the time he was four years old. According to court and child welfare records, Butler routinely beat Charles with a belt. 
once, he forced Charles to eat a pencil because he caught him chewing on its eraser. Another time, he made Charles wear a brick around his neck for a week as punishment for breaking a lawnmower. But on the stand, Butler downplayed his treatment of Charles. He conceded that he gave Charles, quote, a little whipping on two occasions, but blamed Charles, saying he just refused to behave. Charles's mom, Betty, also took the stand. While she briefly mentioned the brick and pencil incidents, Cantu failed to elicit testimony that would have put these events into context. They were part of a much longer history of abuse and neglect that the jury never got to hear. The picture they were left with was that Charles was just incorrigible, and that everything that happened in his life was basically his fault. And it was no match for what happened when the state's witnesses took the stand. Gutierrez presented an overwhelming series of friends, neighbors, jailers, and just about anyone who could cast Charles in a violent light. Most damaging among them, Charles's ex-girlfriend, Carrie Ann Wright. Her testimony was devastating, truly excruciating to read. They'd met when Carrie Ann was just 13. Charles was 15. She described him as charming at first, but then, after she got pregnant with his kid, he'd turned mean, volatile. She described physical beatings of her and of other people, and numerous instances of rape. There's no question Charles was violent toward Carrie Ann. He's told us as much. Like... You know, she basically tells a giant, long tale of horrific abuse oh, yeah, yeah. at your hands. Right. And I, I, I just, can you explain where all that... I'm not, you know, then back then I felt I was justified that, that I, I, did, I did beat her up. I beat her up twice. But I didn't beat her with my fist. I, I, I smacked her around, you know, but I never hit her with my fist. On the stand, Carrie Ann depicted the abuse as far, far worse. Just relentless beatings, which seemed to escalate dramatically over time. There's no way to know the truth of exactly what happened between them, and you'll hear more from Carrie Ann later. But it makes sense that she would describe this on the stand. That's the kind of testimony you expect at a punishment hearing. Still, at times, her testimony veered into speculation about whether Charles would pose a danger to society going forward. This is another important aspect to Texas death penalty cases. The idea is that if you're so dangerous that you would pose a threat to society, even to the community inside prison, then there's nothing that can be done but execute you. Frankly, it's pseudoscience at best but it's been in Texas law for decades. And prosecutors often bring this kind of stuff out at trial, usually through expert testimony. For what it's worth, Carrie Ann is not an expert. Yet she said things like Charles, quote, lives and breathes violence and knows, quote, nothing more, that everyone would be safer without him. Did she think he could be rehabilitated, Gutierrez asked? No chance, she said. We were surprised the defense didn't object to the testimony. Instead, when his turn came to push back against this picture of Charles as an ongoing danger to society, Cantu again seemed to do the state's work for them by calling a notorious Texas psychologist named Walter Quijano. He's one of a handful of self-proclaimed experts in so-called future dangerousness. If you know Quijano's name at all, it's probably because of his quack theory that being Black makes you more likely to be violent in the future. He peddled that crap in at least six capital cases in Texas. Typically, Quijano would be called as a witness by the state. But in Charles's case, he was called by the defense. And by the end of his testimony, Quijano had concluded that Charles was a psychopath who would always be a threat. 
On cross-examination, Gutierrez asked, well, if that's the case, wouldn't sentencing him to death be the best way to deal with it? That would do the work, Quijano replied. On June 17, 1994, Charles was sentenced to die. Do you remember when the, the verdict came down? Yeah. What was that like? It was, uh, it just, it, it stuck something out of me, right? I mean, you know, I, mean, I knew they was going to find me guilty from the start, you know? But it, it was, it was a, a hard thing, you know, especially knowing my mom sitting back there, you know? We wanted to talk to as many people involved in the trial as possible. The judge, prosecutor, defense attorneys, and jurors. We spent a lot of time tracking the jurors down on our trips to Houston. None agreed to meet us in person. One guy shared some thoughts in an email, saying that no one disputed that Charles had confessed. And if there was any evidence of innocence, the jury never heard it. A couple more people agreed to talk to us on the phone. That is certainly something I'll never forget. That was a very... um disturbing and emotional uh, jury that I sat on. That was a very hard decision to make concerning Mr. Raby. Yeah, I mean, concerning the, you know, my, my, my thought was who, who died and made me God to, you know, judge this man's life. This is Jada Lancaster Wiley. The way she described it, the jury was unanimous in its decision that Charles was guilty. But exactly what he was guilty of was a different question. I thought it was uh, murder-rape. What was it that convinced you about that? Do you remember? The way her, her clothes were taken off. But not everyone agreed it was rape. And one guy, he couldn't decide if there even was an aggravator. He had a really hard time um, Debating whether it was a capital murder or it was a capital murder charge or, um, you know, a lesser charge. He had a hard time with that. Another juror, who did not want his name used, said that it was a traumatizing experience. I can tell you that ever since that trial, uh, I would never again in my life uh, convict someone of murder. I, I don't think that is my job in life. That's God's decision. So, <laughs> you know, I uh, I did it because we, quote, followed the law, and that's what the law told us to do. Uh, but if I was ever confronted with something like that again, I would have to tell the judge and, and everyone that uh, I, I can't do that ever again in my life. It haunted me for a long time that that I decided that that guy was supposed to die. We were also curious about what the judge, Woody Denson, would remember about the case. Denson served as a judge from 1983 to 1995. The press on him that we could find wasn't exactly flattering. Denson's most recent claim to fame was having been caught on a surveillance camera keying his neighbor's Range Rover because he thought it was blocking the sidewalk. He denied it, but eventually pleaded guilty to criminal mischief. One local attorney summed up Denson for the Houston Press. In almost 30 years of doing criminal defense law, if ever there was such a thing as a four-man judicial bobsled team from hell, he'd be riding point. Denson died in 2020. When we reached out to him in 2019, we weren't optimistic that he would want to talk to us. Hi, uh, is this Judge Denson? Hello? That was totally him. <laughs> that was definitely him. That was definitely him. All right, let me call back. Okay. Hello? Hi, sorry. I think we might have gotten cut off. I was looking for Woody Denson. 
Uh, this is E. Oh, hi. I'm, uh, my name is Liliana Segura. I'm a reporter, um, and I was hoping I, I've been trying to get. We told him we had questions about Charles's case. What's the name of the case? The defendant was Charles Raby. Paul Raby. Hold on just a second. Paul Raby. Uh, that's the defendant. Hello. No, it was it was sorry, Charles Raby. Raby with an R. Oh, I think I, it's Rapier is his name. It's Did you talking about Rapier? It's no, it's R A B Y. Um, was the last name. Um, so it's well, possible. That doesn't really ring a bell. I try to. This went on for a while. It might seem weird that a judge wouldn't remember a death penalty case that he presided over. Sending someone to death row is obviously a pretty heavy burden. But Denson is not the only judge we've spoken to who didn't remember a particular capital case. And given how many people were being sentenced to death in this era, it's not all that surprising. Denson asked us who Charles's lawyers were. We told him it was Felix Cantu and Michael Fosher. Michael Fisher? Fosher with an O, or Fosher, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Oh, how do you spell the last name? Oh, what? Fosher is F as in Frank, O-S-H-E-R. Well, uh, you know, I remember Felix, uh, I don't, the, the last name of this other lawyer's name, Oscar, O-S-C-A-R, right? No, no, Fosher with an F. Well, I, I don't, re- that one I do not recall. And then Denson insisted he wasn't the judge who presided over Charles's trial. You know, maybe another lawyer tried, another judge tried it. It's possible that, I can't remember, I'm just trying to think, maybe I went on vacation or something. I mean, but your, your name, I mean, it, you know, the record shows that you were the judge, so that's why, I mean, otherwise I wouldn't know to get in touch with you. <laughs> well, no, no, I can appreciate it. My name's that, but I just don't remember one with Felix Cantu being on it, this other guy that, Oscar, I, it doesn't ring a bell at all. We thought it best to end the call. Okay, well, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Halfway through that conversation, I was like, maybe he wasn't the judge. He seems so certain he wasn't the judge. We also tried to reach Michael Fosher, Charles's second chair lawyer, but he didn't want to talk to us. Most of all, we wanted to talk to Felix Cantu. We wanted to know why he made the decisions he made at trial. As it turned out, that's the one thing he didn't want to talk to us about. I'm going to limit it to what occurred and not what I did or didn't do. Cantu said he couldn't meet up while we were in Houston because he was dealing with an emergency. It's actually the plumbing in my house. Oh, God. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you don't have any plumbing. You're serious in the problem, so that's what I've got. We made a tentative plan to meet up the next time we were in town, but apparently he was still having plumbing problems. After that, we left a bunch of messages for him. Finally, in February 2020, we decided to track him down. We went to his house in a leafy neighborhood on Houston's west side. We knocked on his door, but no one answered. So we left a note in his mailbox. Nothing. In early March, we went back and wrote him another note. It totally looks like maybe there's just not here. That is too bad. Still nothing. At this point, it was becoming clear that the pandemic was a big deal, and we might not be able to come back to Houston for a while. We decided to give it one more shot. Somebody is definitely there. Yeah. I see them. You do? I see someone through the glass. Oh, there comes Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm Chris. You're looking for Felix. Oh, he's out. He'll be about about, about 20 minutes. He went to the store. We decided to wait around. There was only one way onto his street, so we'd see him when he returned. We parked the car down the block and watched. No can too. But then, suddenly, a man emerged from the house and checked the mailbox. He looked up and down the road. It was Cantu. He'd been inside the house the whole time, dodging us. 
this is just maddening. Completely maddening. Back again? Yeah. strangest game of cat and mouse I've ever, it's like we talk to someone, hey, Felix, are you Felix? Oh, uh, yes. Hi. 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 It's so Jordan fun. and Liliana. How are you? How are you? Right. And why are you? What? Why are you here? Well, because we've been trying to get in touch with you and you said you'd meet with us and then you never got back with us and we've been trying to get in so, touch with you. So he just decided to just come by. Yeah. Oh, uninvited. Sorta. <laughs> no, no, not sorta. Well, I mean, you said you'd meet with us, and then you've kind of been blowing but, but, us off. But that doesn't mean that you're, you're invited today well, at this hour. Oh, cool. come on in. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> just, we, it's not our preference to show up. It's not our preference. <laughs> we just, um, I don't believe that one. So you don't read much into, into non-calls, huh? Well, no, I mean, we prefer if someone's going to tell us to go away, that they just, like, literally tell us to go away. I wouldn't be that rude. <laughs> go sit down. You think that? He led us to his home office. The phone on his desk rang a couple times as we talked. To be honest, after all of our anticipation and our stakeout, the conversation we had with Cantu was just a letdown. It's not just that he didn't want to discuss the trial. He genuinely didn't remember most of it. I mean, you're going to ask me to remember a lot of things about the case, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to remember. Not that I don't want to tell you. Just I just will not remember. One thing that did come through, from the start, the odds were stacked against him. Were you nervous about doing a capital case? I mean, you said you'd done, what, one before? Yeah. No, not really. Not really. Uh, the other thing um, that I was bothered by is if, if you know, the state wants to go to trial, that's usually a pretty well done deal for them. I mean, how many do they lose? Maybe one out of a thousand, maybe. As we talked with Cantu, a couple things became pretty clear. One, he really liked Charles and felt sorry for him. More importantly, though, we also got the feeling that Cantu thought Charles was guilty and that Charles's confession had something to do with that. What he says now is, is, is not what he said then. Uh, that's all I can say. Which one is true? I can't tell you that. This is what I do say. I hope that he gets off the death penalty, the death row. And I, and I wish him the best. And I hope to live long enough to see him walk in the streets of Houston, Texas. And we'll go have a Coke together. That'd be nice. Needless to say, Linda McLean, Edna Franklin's daughter, doesn't have the same warm feeling about Charles that Cantu does. But it seems they may have one thing in common. Regardless of what Charles says now, neither of them can get past his confession. I mean, who's going to confess to murdering a 72-year-old woman with arthritis Who's going to confess to that? Because they have a girl in the other room with a baby. Are you really going to do that? Oh, and then guess what? It's going to be capital murder. Ooh, do you know what that means? That means you're going to be eligible for the death penalty. Do you still want to confess to this? Uh, I wouldn't have at all. I would have ran screaming from the room. Next time on Murderville, Texas... Confessions. I find it very hard to believe that he remembers the old Volkswagen in the driveway, but doesn't remember what he did with the knife. It just it doesn't add up. There is little doubt in my mind that something happened in there that we don't know about. Did I do it? Could I do it? He wasn't even 100% sure. Everywhere I go, they say, that's him, the granny killer. You know, that's what the one cop called me, a granny killer, you know, and, that, and that's when I started getting, you know, like more 
frustrated and angry, started just hating everything and everyone at that point, right, you know? Murderville, Texas is a production of The Intercept and First Look Media. Andrea Jones is our story editor. Julia Scott is senior producer. Truk Wynn is our podcast fellow. Laura Flynn is supervising producer. Fact-checking by Miri Jesuthasen. Special thanks to Jack Desidoro and Holly Demuth for additional production assistance. Voice acting on this episode by Vincent Thomas, Jake McCready, Bo Davidson, Luis Bermudez, Tommy Donahue, and Bill Seller. Our show was mixed by Rick Kwan, with original music by Zach Young. Legal Review by David Brelo. Executive producers are Roger Hodge and Christy Gressman. For The Intercept, Betsy Reed is the editor-in-chief. I'm Liliana Segura. And I'm Jordan Smith. You can read show transcripts and see photos at theintercept.com slash murderville. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Liliana Segura and at chronic underscore Jordan. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash donate. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find us. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks. So- Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Much for listening. 